Well, this morning, we get to consider one of the most comforting promises in all of the Word of God. It has to do with the goodness and the generosity of God to those who pray to Him, and especially to those who are His children by spiritual adoption, those who can truly call God Father. If you're turning your Bibles to Matthew 7, which you can find on page 762 in your pew Bibles. Uh, This is where we'll be this morning. Matthew chapter 7, page 762 in the pew Bibles. We'll be focusing on verses 7 through 11 this morning of Matthew chapter 7. So this portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has to do with prayer and if you've been part of our, our series here in Matthew uh, over the past few months, it may strike you as a little odd that Jesus is returning to prayer here in the Sermon on the Mount because he's already talked about prayer earlier in his message. Back in chapter six, you know, he gave the instructions on the Lord's prayer and how we are to, to pray, what we are to pray for. Uh, he talked about praying not to be seen by others but praying truly to God with sincerity of heart. But here, he returns to prayer. Now, Jesus was not a disorganized speaker who in the course of his talk just remembered, oh, oh guys, I forgot to mention something about prayer. No, he, he's mentioning prayer here. He's, he's returning to it for a specific reason. And I think the reason is, is as Jesus has been giving so much teaching, instructing his followers on how they are to live in this world. Naturally, they would be thinking, wow, that's, that's tough. That's, it's, it's tough to, to seek first the kingdom of God, to walk each day by faith, not to set our hearts on the things of this world. It's tough not to be hypercritical of other people and to examine our own hearts, get the log out of our own eyes, instead of being, uh, having a PhD in, in other people's faults. It's tough to, to trust in the Lord when the cares of this life are pressing in. It's, it's well nigh impossible not to be angry at others with, with even a selfish anger, even if we don't give expression to it. How? Can we do this? And indeed, they couldn't. And neither can we. You know, it's interesting how some people view the Sermon on the Mount as just some ethical rules that, you know, everybody just needs to follow and the world will be a better place. And yet, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a way of life that is so far beyond what we can do. That doesn't just regulate our outward actions, but it regulates the very emotions that we feel in our hearts. It's utterly impossible for us. We feel what we feel, right? How can we change that? How could we change that in our own strength? And that's the point. We can't. And so Jesus calls us to the impossible. He calls us to the impossible here in the Sermon on the Mount. And therefore, we go to him who makes the impossible possible. We go to him and we ask, we seek, we knock. 
So in salvation, you know, God gives us the forgiveness of our sins, purchased by, by the very blood of Christ. But he also gives us a new nature, that, that new heart, the desires to please God. But he doesn't just leave us with new desires that want to do the right thing, but are just utterly powerless to do it. He doesn't leave us in a state of constant disappointment. He also gives us his Holy Spirit to enable us and empower us to live for God, to love God, though imperfectly. In giving us his spirit, he gives us a new ability and strength and power to love and obey him. And though that power, that divine help is available to to us, God doesn't just dispense it to us automatically. He calls upon us to pray. He calls upon us to seek it from him, to ask him. And he promises in our text this morning that those who ask and seek and knock will receive, they will find, the door will be opened to them. And so as we consider this text this morning, let's keep in mind the the context. This isn't primarily uh, referring necessarily to just physical things in this life. But I think the context is, is primarily pointing to spiritual things, how to live for God, how to serve God, how to love God, how to love those around us. I don't think it's limited to that, but that's the primary focus here. Let's read the text, Matthew 7, and we'll start in verse 7. It says, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So in this passage, our Father in heaven promises us good things when we ask. That's the main idea of of these verses. Our Heavenly Father generously promises good things to us when we ask. And we'll consider this text this morning with three main points. First of all, our need. Our need. Secondly, God's promise. And third, God's reassurance. So our need, God's promise, God's reassurance. So first of all, our need. We are needy people. Jesus doesn't say here in this passage of scripture, he doesn't say, you know, if something crazy happens and you just happen to have a need sometime in your life, no. Jesus assumes that we will have needs. He doesn't even try to argue for that here. He assumes our neediness. That's just a given. Our neediness is shown in the fact that that Jesus gives us instruction 
on what to do when we're in need, how to have our needs met, how to ask, seek, and knock. Because in truth, we don't have all that we need within us. You know, the world uh, will often try to tell you that you are enough. You have what it takes. And you just need to look within and find that inner strength. But that's not what Jesus taught. He doesn't tell us to look within, but to ask of our Heavenly Father. Now, asking, seeking, and knocking, those are just different figures of speech that are referring to prayer. And that's clear from verses 9 through 11, where he's explaining further what he means. And he speaks in terms of asking God, as a child asks a father for some food. And he says, your heavenly father, he loves to give good things to those who ask him. And so when we bring our requests to God, what is that? But that's, that's prayer. And so asking, seeking, knocking, this is referring to prayer. In our need, Jesus tells us to ask our Father in heaven. Now, it's by failing to, to recognize our neediness that we often go through life with so little spiritual power. We kind of limp along. Maybe we get by, but just barely. What do we miss out on because we don't ask? As the book of James says in James 4.2, you have not because you ask not. But perhaps, you know, perhaps you even feel like you're doing just fine spiritually at the moment. Like, you know, there's no great trial you're walking through. Things are okay. The, the, the seas of life are pretty smooth at the moment. But think about it. You don't know what storms of life might be forming on the horizon. And that might rock your boat as you sail across the sea of life towards the Isle of Paradise. Perhaps you're oblivious to spiritual dangers that lurk just underneath the surface like icebergs, ready to tear a gaping hole in your ship. You need direction. You need the great navigator himself. You need his guidance and his protection to help you steer a safe course through life. Don't presume to go about it in your own strength. And assume that just because things are going okay now, that you don't really need to pray. You know, it's, it's a sad fact that we often don't pray until things get really bad. Jesus said to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the same is true of us. That was true for Peter and John and James and Andrew. Without him, we can do nothing. You know, one reason we may struggle to pray is that we underestimate our neediness. We don't recognize our utter inability to meet our needs. We often suffer from a, a false sense of self-sufficiency. We can take care of ourselves. I feel safe in saying that none of us realize just how needy and helpless we are, especially in a spiritual sense. If God should remove his hand of protection from us for one moment, we would fall into the lowest depths of sin, things that we never thought were imaginable for us to do. What fiery darts of temptation has 
has God been shielding you from? Because he knows that you're not ready to face that. Let us not think too highly of ourselves and our ability. To be a brave soldier in training camp is one thing. To be brave on the field of battle when the bullets are zipping past your head and the explosions are shaking the ground beneath you, that's a whole different matter. You may think you're doing well spiritually at the moment. Maybe you're not falling into any great, noticeably scandalous sin, but it may be that at this very moment, the enemy is getting in position to ambush you, to come up behind you when you're not prepared and, and attack you when, you when you've let your guard down. Our needs are great and numerous more than we realize. If we just saw our need more, how desperately we would pray for God's help. You know, our needs are great, but God has great promises to meet our great needs. And this brings us to our second point. We've looked at our need. Now let's consider God's promise. God's promise. Listen to the way Jesus comforts us in our need by promising us that if you ask, it will be given to you. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, not it might be open to you if God happens to not be asleep in the rocking chair. No, if you knock, the door will be opened to you. Now, some have mistakenly taken this promise and they've, they've formed a view of prayer in which God here is obligating himself to do for us whatever we want him to do whenever we want him to do it, in whatever terms we demand. You know, if, if we have enough faith and we pray with enough faith that God will give us a new Corvette, then God is, he's got to give it to us. He's, he's promised in his word or a job promotion or healing from cancer. And then what happens? Often we pray and God doesn't give us the new Corvette or the job promotion or, or heal our loved one from cancer. And, and then what happens? Our, our faith is shaken. Was God not true to his word? Or maybe I just didn't ask with enough faith. Do I have a faith problem? But these verses here are not everything the Bible says about prayer. We need to understand this promise correctly. Sometimes we can read the scriptures teaching on prayer and, and a lot of other subjects too, like reading an instruction manual. And what happens if you're reading an instruction manual and it's telling you how to build some complicated machine, put it together, and you only look at certain pages and you just kind of skip over other pages and, oh, there were some other steps there, but ah, oh, well, I, I, just, I like this step right here. This makes sense. This, this one's easy. Well, if we, if we did that, we shouldn't be surprised if in the end the machine is not working quite right. We need to, to read carefully the whole instruction manual and see what each page would teach us about how to construct the machine. And the same is true of the scriptures teaching on prayer. We need to take into consideration the whole of the Bible's teaching on it. And Jesus here, he's not giving us a comprehensive 
instruction on prayer. I mean, he's already talked about prayer earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. There are other places in the New Testament that are going to teach us more about prayer. But the focus Jesus has here is on the effectiveness of prayer, of our prayers being heard and of God's willingness to give us good things when we pray. But we need to understand what exactly is being promised here. If you look at verse 11, you'll see there that our Father in heaven will give good things to those who ask him. Good things. He knows what's good for us. He knows what's good for us. And we don't always know what's good for us. You know, my kids might believe that this afternoon, when we go home and have our Sunday afternoon ice cream, and I've given them two bowls of ice cream. Uh, and they might, they might think that they need another bowl, that that would be good for them. And they ask, hey, Daddy, can I have another bowl of ice cream? And I love them. And so I say, no, son, <laughs> you can't have three bowls of ice cream in one day. Wait till next Sunday. And they might get a little frustrated with me in the moment. They might think, well, of course, another bowl of ice cream would be good for me. But, but as their dad, I know better. You know, John Stott puts it well when he writes that about, about our, our text this morning. He says, it is absurd to suppose that the promise, ask and it shall be given to you, is an absolute pledge with no strings attached. That knock and it will be open to you is an open sesame to every closed door without exception. And that by waving a wand of a prayer, a prayer wand, any wish will be granted and every dream will come true. The idea is ridiculous. It, it, it would turn prayer into magic. The person who prays into a magician like Aladdin and God into our servant who appears instantly to do our bidding like Aladdin's genie every time we rub our little prayer lamp. He goes on that this would put an impossible strain on every sensitive Christian if he or she knew that, that he was certain to get everything he asked for. It would, it would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by prayer promises, God was pledged to give whatever we ask, when we ask, and in exactly the terms we ask. How could we bear the burden? James 4 tells us that it's possible to pray and not get what we pray for because we're asking wrongly. Here's what it says there in James chapter 4 and verse 2. It says, you ask and you do not receive. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So with, with a selfish heart, with a, a worldly and covetous heart. It's possible to pray in that way. And, and if we do, we might ask and not receive because God knows that it, that wouldn't be the best thing for us to have right now. Romans 8.26 says that we do not know what to pray for as we ought and that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. What a comforting truth that is that the Holy Spirit is praying for us and he knows exactly what we need. And yet Jesus still calls upon us to pray. 
He still calls upon us to pray. That's, so, so this is what this isn't promising, but what exactly is it promising? And as I alluded to a second ago, it, it's promising that God our Father will give us good things to those who ask. If what we ask is good, he will give it. If it's not what's best for us, then he'll withhold it, but he'll give us something better. Let us not think that we'll, that we'll go to our Heavenly Father empty-handed, asking to be filled and just sent away as empty-handed as we came, to have the door slammed in our face. No, prayer is effective. Prayer works. And this, this text is an encouragement to us to ask, to bring our requests to the Father. Big requests, small requests, even in humility, recognizing, Lord, Father, you know, if this is best for me, I don't know what's best for me. I think this is best for me. So I'm asking you, but I trust your wisdom. So do you want to be closer to God? Now that's, that for sure is a good thing. Do you want to be closer to God? Pray, ask him, seek him. Do, are you struggling to pray? Listen, I struggle to pray a lot of times. I sit down and I'm, I know I, I need to pray and my mind is going a thousand different directions. My phone is, is beeping and blinking and all that. And I, I sometimes, I just have a hard time focusing and I just, I start my prayer with just praying, God, help me to pray. Help me to pray. Are you struggling with impatience? With, it, with anxiousness? Fear? Anger or resentment. Ask God. Seek his help. Maybe you're single and you want to be married. That's a good thing, to be married to a, to a godly spouse. Pray. Turn anxious thoughts and fears into prayers. And remember that your heavenly father loves to give good gifts to his children. Let us be bold in praying great things of God. Let's not think that, that, that um, we just need to bring kind of small requests to God. Like, I wouldn't pray for that because that's, that's really big. And let's also not think that God doesn't care about little things, little requests. Let's pray for, let's pray for big things like revival in our nation. Pray for the salvation of our leaders for new ministry opportunities for us as a church, for boldness in evangelism. You know, I'm, I'm just afraid just talking to strangers. God, help me. Help me to, to love their souls more than I'm shy. To pray for resources to, to forgive deep wounds and old hurts. For the, for the strength to love with the very love of God. That kind of love that loves even your enemies. Not just treating them right. Not just pretending like you love them. But genuinely loving them from the heart. That's what Romans 12 calls us to do. Let love be genuine. How do you do that? Well, ask, seek, knock. God will help us do the impossible. What are we missing out on because we don't ask? 
Let's be praying and asking God for good things and let us trust him while we wait. You know, sometimes he'll answer us with a yes. Sometimes he'll answer us with a a yes, but not yet. And sometimes he says, no, but I've got something better for you. You know, God is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. That's what Ephesians 3.20 says. Turn for a moment in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. And that's on page 912 in your pew Bibles. We're just going to look at a couple of verses there in 2 Corinthians 12 from the life of Paul to illustrate this. Because Paul was asking. He was seeking. He was knocking. He was pleading with God about something that was that was very important to him. Paul had some kind of very painful condition that he describes as a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but if you've ever had a big old splinter stuck in you or a giant thorn, you know that's not a pleasant thing. And so Paul, he had pleaded with the Lord that it should leave him. Look at verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times. Pleading. And yet he still has it. You know, he's talking past tense here. Like he, he has prayed for this. He has pleaded with the Lord. And yet he currently has this thorn in the flesh still. God did not take it away. But don't think that Paul, that all of his prayers were for nothing, that they weren't effective. Don't think that he went away from the Lord empty-handed. Look at verse 9. Here was was God's response to Paul's request. God responded to Paul, and and he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God didn't give Paul what he asked for. He didn't remove the pain, at least not yet. I guess this might be a yes, but not yet type of thing, because eventually, of course, all of Paul's pains were removed. But, but in the meantime, it was God's will for Paul to continue to suffer with this condition. But God gave him something better than physical relief. He gave him his grace a special measure of grace to endure this trial and the honor of having God's power perfected in Paul's weakness. He gave Paul joy and contentedness that would bring greater praise and glory and honor to God and comfort countless Christians down through the ages who would read and relate to Paul here in 2 Corinthians 12. Look at at the way Paul Look at how he feels now after having prayed. He's not, he's not complaining that, you know, I prayed and God just, he didn't, he didn't hear me. No, here's, here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He's like, I'd rather have that power than have deliverance from my physical pain. He said, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's prayers worked. They were effective. He didn't leave without a blessing. Even one greater than he'd come for originally. One that he wouldn't trade for all the physical comfort that he'd sought. Brothers and sisters, here in Matthew 7, Jesus means to encourage us to pray. In telling us to ask and seek and knock, because prayer gets things done. Prayer works. Leon Morris writes, All who serve God know what it is to be faced with doors that are fast closed, locked shut. And it means a lot that prayer will result in the opening of such doors. Now, I will say there's one possible exception that I can think of. Again, we need to take the whole of Scripture's teaching on this matter. Um, but here's one thing that struck my mind as I was, as I was thinking about the, the effectiveness of prayer. The Bible does say that our prayers can be hindered. For example, it speaks to husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, it tells husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, I don't want my prayers to be hindered. I want them to be effective. I want, them, I want God to hear. Maybe it would be good for us husbands to, to go home and, and reflect. You know, do I feel like my prayers are being hindered? How, how am I treating my wife? Because the Bible says there's a correlation there. Well, we've considered our need. We've considered God's promise. Let's consider, lastly, point number three, God's reassurance. God's reassurance to us. Jesus doesn't just tell us to ask and promise that asking we will receive, but he reasons with us as to why it is worth it to pray. He reasons with us from our own personal experience, even. He gives us reassurance as we approach the Father with our requests, So go ahead and turn back to Matthew 7. And we look at at verse 9 there in Matthew 7. Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? these These are rhetorical questions here. The answer Jesus is expecting is, of course, I wouldn't give my kid a rock if he asked for bread. That would be cruel. That would be mean. This isn't denying, of course, that there are abusive parents in the world. But Jesus' audience would have understood what he's getting at. That even we know how to give good gifts to our children. Even even something as basic as, as a crust of bread when they're hungry. Hopefully more than a crust of bread. But this is what they ate in those days. Bread and fish. That was their main diet. Jesus asks these rhetorical questions to set up his next statement there in verse 11. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven 
give good things to those who ask him. Do you know how to give good gifts to your kids? Even something basic like food? And you, Jesus says, you are evil. You who are fallen sinners, transgressors of God's holy laws. Now, Jesus, when he says you are evil, he's not meaning that his audience was particularly criminal. Like he was talking to everybody who was like convicted felons or something. But, you know, they may have been pretty, pretty decent people from a human perspective, pretty moral people. But before God, before the Holy Son of God, who was speaking to them, all of us are evil. All of us fall short, all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And Jesus says, listen, you are sinners. You're evil. <laughs> he's, he's not trying to boost our self-esteem there, I guess. But he is trying to comfort us. And he says, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is good, far better than the best human parents that you've ever seen, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You can see his reasoning, his logic. This is Jesus' reassurance to us. Christian, your heavenly Father, he loves giving you good gifts. He loves to give you good gifts. Jesus and speaking to his disciples in, in the, towards the end of the book of John, over and over again, he said to them, I'm saying these things to you that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Jesus, you know, God doesn't, he doesn't want us to just walk through life with sorrow. He, he doesn't, it's not pleasing to God when we suffer. God, you know, like Jesus said, that your joy may be full. But he wants what's best for us, first and foremost. And sometimes that might mean going through, you know, doing without for a time. Sometimes that's, that might be what it means. But never let us doubt that he is good. He is generous to us. And he invites us to ask and seek and knock. But before we close, there's more reassurance that we have, even than we find in this text. And that's found in the gospel. That's found at the cross the cross is the greatest demonstration possible of God's willingness to give generously, even at great cost. For God so loved the world that he gave not just a bunch of money donated to charity. He gave his only son. God the Father, in order to, to save sinners, he gave his only son. Jesus willingly came and lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then he, he died. Instead of being rewarded for his righteousness, he was punished for our sins, punished for our faults. He was beaten, mocked, falsely accused, rejected by the world and by his friends. And there he died on the cross. And he died under the, under the wrath and the curse of God, taking on the just punishment for sins. You know, that's what we deserved. We deserved to be nailed to that cross. And Jesus went there for sinners. 
standing in our place, absorbing the full force of that hurricane of justice that would have taken an eternity for us in hell. So that all who trust in him, believing on him, will not have to face it. Those storm clouds have expended everything that they have. And all we, all we get to look forward to is the sunshine of God's blessing in our lives for eternity. Jesus took death, even though he didn't earn it, even though he never sinned. And why? Because he was purchasing a gift. He was purchasing for us the most costly gift that there ever was. The gift of free forgiveness, full forgiveness. Not just a chance to do better. Not just a fresh start. Jesus came to give us a full salvation. A full entrance into heaven. Full reconciliation with God and all the blessings that come with that. And they come to those who believe who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my question to you this morning is, do you believe? Do you believe? What does that look like to believe? Well, it looks like believing what God says of us in the Bible. First of all, recognizing that we are needy. We're sinners. We can't get our acts together enough to come to God. We can't think that that we'll have a good enough day that we can finally come to God and and pray for his forgiveness and he'll hear us. We can't think that we'll cry enough tears that we'll finally earn his, his forgiveness. And he'll see, oh, they're sorry enough, now I'll forgive them. We can't think that there's anything in us, anything in us that can save us from our condition or, or pay for any of our past sins. Our guilt is just too great. And all the good deeds we can do can't erase our bad that we've already done. Do you see your need for a savior? Do you see your need? But not just do you see your need, do you see his promise? That he promises in spite of our sin, in spite of what we deserve, to forgive us freely. You know, I love the the words to that song, just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark spot. We don't clean ourselves up to come to God. We come to him just as we are. Knowing we don't deserve to come, come to him as you are and let him cleanse you. Let him do heart surgery on you. Let him give you that new heart that you need. Come to him and find his forgiveness. And that's my call in closing to any of you who, Maybe you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning. Maybe you have questions about that. Come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about that. I, I wrestled with a lot of doubts growing up. And I, I always thought that I wasn't doing enough. And I hadn't been sincere enough. My faith wasn't strong enough. And I hadn't cried enough tears for God to forgive me. And then one day, the beauty of the gospel hit me, and I I realized that it wasn't about my tears. It wasn't about the strength of my faith. It wasn't about my resolve to do better. It was about what Jesus did on the cross, and that alone, that alone. 
So if you have any questions, please come talk to me. I'd love to talk with you about this or talk to a church member that you know. If you believe on Christ, then God is your father. You have been adopted into his family. And in a special way, you can call him father. And these promises that we've considered this morning are yours. And if you're not a Christian this morning, there is still time to be adopted into his family. And these promises can be yours. They can be yours. If he's given us what cost him most of all, what cost him more than we could ever know, his only son, how much more will he give us other good gifts? How much more? Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your amazing generosity. Lord, we praise you for your amazing love and your goodness to us. Lord, if we see ourselves rightly, we don't deserve your goodness. We don't deserve your love. We're not worthy of that. We don't even recognize how, how unworthy we are, Lord, how sinful we are, how deserving of your punishment we are. And yet, you who see us with x-ray vision right down to the ugliest detail, the, the worst sinful desire in the depths of our heart that we would be ashamed for anyone to know, you who see that perfectly still offer us forgiveness, still offer us love, still offer to clean us up and save our souls. Welcome us into your family. We praise you for that, Lord. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.